Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> sure good to see you. Is it? <laughs> I hope so. I have, I have some things to say to you about things that are great. Now, I've, I've, I've chosen that theme for the month. And uh, last week we talked about a great light. Now, when we talk about the term great, we're talking about something that's, that is of a magnitude beyond the ordinary. Larger than life itself, basically, when we talk, when we use terms like that. And the text we just read, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute because I'm going to say some things, first of all, about the message. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel means good news. And, and it is a message that carries different meanings for the time and circumstances of individuals. So sometimes when we get a message... It, it doesn't mean as much to us as it might to someone else. And, and in this text, if we read the whole thing, the whole context, we'd find that the shepherds were given, an, given a message, and that is that the Savior was born. And the text says that the angels rejoiced. They got very excited about that message. They saw something that the shepherds didn't see. You know, the shepherds, they heard it, and they were amazed, they were terrified, and they went back into town, stunned. They didn't know what was going on. And they went back and told other people what had happened. But the message did not have the same impact on them that it did on the angels. The angels saw something different in that message, and it, it enthused them. They, they became ebullient about it. They, they were joyous about that message. The shepherds were, wow, what's going on? And what, what is this message? They didn't really understand that for quite a while until basically none of us understood it until after the resurrection. However, let me get back to my point. Sometimes a message delivered has a different impact. And it did on these. Different impact on the angels that it did on the shepherds. If a, do if a doctor announced to a woman, you are pregnant. Now, it would have a different impact on different women. For instance, Sarah was 90 years old. And when she was told, you're going to have a baby, you know what she did? She laughed. <laughs> 90 years old? I'm pregnant? A unwed teenager would have a different reaction to that message. It would, it would impact her differently. A young couple expecting their first child, along with their parents expecting their first grandchild, would have a different impact, wouldn't it? You're pregnant, you're going to have your first baby, and you, you folks are going to have your first grandbaby. So, you see, the message will have a, a different impact. Heaven sees things differently than we do. And that's my point I'm going to make this morning. Heaven looks at things differently than we do. And sometimes it's tough for us to get in that mode of seeing things that heaven is seeing. Jesus used some illustrations along this line. When he said, he used the term in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, he says, The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. Now, heaven could understand that. 
But the people sitting in darkness, maybe they didn't understand that. And we'll, we'll probably illustrate that a little bit more as well. So Jesus used different things on this earth that we are familiar with in order to emphasize the things that heaven wanted to impress on us. So, for instance, he uses illustrations out of ordinary life. Agriculture, the, the sower of the seed, and how he sowed seed in different places. He used uh, daily life, people going about their, their activities. He used feasts, he used business deals, he used home life. He used a number of illustrations. And I'm going to use some illustrations this morning to illustrate what we're talking about when we say there is a great message. And the first thing I want to tell, tell you about is something that happened on August the 5th, 2010, in a pole in a desert in Chile. August 5th, 2010, 2,300 feet below the surface of the earth, there was a rumbling. It felt like an earthquake. And the workers in that gold and silver mine were stunned when a great slab that was 45 feet tall of mountain, 700,000 pounds, two and a half times the weight of the Empire State Building, came crashing down and sealed them from the, from the people above. The mine was entered by a ramp. When we think of mines, gold mines and the coal mines and so forth, we think of drilling straight down in a hole, right? This is a mine and people go down the elevator and come back up in the elevator, work the mines, a little spider web of mines. This mine, however, was reached, the bottom was reached by a spiraling ramp. They drove into it, in other words. So coming into the ramp, they'd start down and they'd go back and forth and back and forth. You've been up mountains before in your automobile, and you've seen how the road goes back and forth, winds back and forth, serpentine until it gets to the top. That's the way this did, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. 2,300 feet below ground was a group of miners, 33 of them, and they were trapped. They were cut off from all communication. Uh, they they uh, had air, apparently they, they still had air, but upon examination, they found that they couldn't get through that large slab because it, it, it traversed their path, their ramp going back up. They had heavy equipment with them, as a matter of fact. They had big bulldozers and big excavators. But that slab, 45 stories tall, had completely sealed off that whole ramp so they couldn't get out. And they, did have, they had no escape route to get out. 33 of these men, and the only light they had was the lamps on their heads and some flashlights and so forth. So they were trapped. They eventually, after the dust settled, they went into what they called the refuge, which is also uh, served as a, a lunchroom, and it was fortified. And so they went into that, that refuge, and that's where they, they gathered and, and they... they uh, tried to figure out how they were going to reach the top and how anybody knew that they were alive and down there. Seventeen days later, they tapped on everything, they dug at everything, they tried, they, they finally realized it's going to have, the rescue is going to have to come from above. Forty-five, or seventeen days later, 
a little hole was punctured in that area, not in their not in their refuge, but in the area of the mine, and they heard a whooshing of, of air, and they realized that that someone had drilled through and poked a little hole from up above, and uh, it was a five-inch hole. Nobody's going to get out of a five-inch hole. So they, the, the five-inch hole, and, and they, they tapped on the drill bit and so forth, and the people up above realized that they had found them. And so they 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 wrote on the drill bit, and they attached things to it that told the people when they pulled the drill bit up that we are all alive, 33 men, all Chileans except one, a Bolivian. Okay, now then, they're going to have to wait until they're rescued. Uh, the United States, Australia, and Chilean governments brought in huge, monstrous rigs, drilling rigs, to reach them. They knew they had the right drill, they had the right hole after 17 days. So they, they started drilling. And because it was so hard rock, they had to drill small holes and then enlarge those holes. 69 days before they finally broke through. 69 days, that's two and, over two months, two months and a week. Finally, they got a hole big enough and I'm going to show you what they did. This is very interesting. Finally, they got a hole big enough to let a capsule down in that hole. It was 28 inches diameter. They let a capsule down that was designed by Nassau engineers. And they put a man inside that capsule and let the capsule go down in the 2,300 feet. Can you imagine how? That's two... Oh, oh, about two times as tall as the Empire State Building. They let, let that capsule down, and it would, they figured it would take several days to get all the men out. About an hour a man. 33 men, 33 hours. They, they figured it would take longer than that. It really took less than that, but, but when that first person came, the, a man went down that capsule, and then he helped load the survivors up, and when they came up, the world was waiting for good news. Can you imagine how they felt when they got that message? These men have been rescued. They've been in the dark for 69 days. And now they're in the light. Now they're up and they're breathing fresh air and they're seeing the sunshine. Matter of fact, they had to prepare them to come up and get in the sunshine. They had to put a salve on them. But here they are, they have been rescued. Most, it, was a, it was quite an event at the time. When Jesus came to this earth, he came to rescue us because we were, in fact, in darkness. Heaven saw that. Do we see that? Do we see that we're involved in a pit? That we're in the darkness, we're sitting in the darkness, and we need to get into the light. Do we see that? These men knew that. They knew the difference. They knew they were in the dark. The problem is, most of us don't know we're in the dark. We don't know anything about the light. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, 3 and 4, it said that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who believed not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. 
Now the message to you is that Jesus was sent down to this earth. Not in a capsule. He came down in the form of, a, of an infant. And God sent him down here to get you and to get you out of that hole and get you back up into the light. Now if you don't believe you're in the hole and if you don't believe that you're in the darkness, you're not going to get in the capsule. You're not, going to come to the, you're not going to come to the light. And that, my friend, is one of the great problems with the message of Christianity. And the message of the gospel. We just, we're blasé. We're not in the dark. We're in the light. We're doing okay. What do we need Jesus for? What do we need, what do we need uh, to be rescued for? You know what the Bible says in Luke chapter 15, verse 7 and 10? When, when it says that, that the shepherd went out and left the ninety and nine, he went out and got the one sheep and brought him back in. The angels of heaven rejoiced over the rescue of one sheep. Jesus will save us one sheep at a time. And when he does, guess who gets that news? The angels in heaven rejoice because we have been found. And yet... The world goes on about its business and says, well, I, what's, what's the big deal? What, what's, what's the problem here? The problem is that the world has gotten so, and we are part of it if we're not careful, the world has gotten so blasé about sin and darkness that we don't even know we're in the dark. We don't know we're in the dark. And yet we are in the dark. We are in the dark because we do, do not know the light. And as a matter of fact, John 3 verse 19 says... This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness. We like it like this. And so when a soul is rescued, a person is baptized into Jesus Christ, they come up out of the waters of baptism and their, their sins are washed away. Guess who's rejoicing? The angels of heaven. I'm telling you, there's a hallelujah going on in heaven because of that message that that, that soul has been Saved. Sin is not only darkness. Sin is a disease. And it's a disease of the soul. And it's, it's that tricky kind of disease that you're not really sure you've got it. You're not really sure you're sick. You don't know that, that, uh, that something's going on in your heart that's killing you. There, there are a lot of silent killers like that. I'm, I'm not aware of. Of course, I'm not a medical doctor. But I, I've heard of silent killers, heart attacks, strokes, so forth. Silent killers because of a disease that's there. And we're not even aware of the fact that it's there. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus said, Fear not them that are able to kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, there is, there is not a cause and effect relationship that's taught in the Bible between sin and physical sickness. So just because you sin doesn't mean you're physically sick or that you're going to get physically sick. There are some exceptions to that, obviously. Alcoholism and drug addiction, which are sinful, will lead to physical sickness, right? Cirrhosis of the liver... And etc. and the destroy, destroy, destruction of the mind and so forth. Sexual promiscuity is another example of this. People that are promiscuous sexually will eventually end up with some sort of 
of sexually transmitted disease, STD, and their bodies will have an effect on that. But basically, sin is a disease of the heart. It affects your heart. You say, well, not me. I feel good. Things are going well. This is a nice society we live in. What's the, what's the problem? The problem is that sin has diseased our hearts and we're not even sure it's there. I have a, uh, another illustration here. Some of you are, can remember or at least you've read the newspaper stories or you've seen things in, in the museum that have to do with the, the disease called poliomyelitis. It was probably the second largest scourge that ever traversed the world. Uh, uh, that uh, was created by a virus, but polio was was a virus, and it was a it was a terrible disease. I was going to put some pictures of iron lungs on the board too. Do you know what an iron lung is? It was a breathing device for someone who had polio, and it looked like something out of a Steven Spielberg horror show. All all you saw was the head in this big monstrous steel contraption and the little head was sticking out and they had mirrors up here so they could see and read and so forth and it was a breathing machine and the iron lung was designed to help victims of poliomyelitis and you know if you if you look back over history you'll also see and, and these were these were in effect between 1928 and 1950 in this country well, anyway, if you, if you look back at some of the museums and pictures and so forth of, of iron lungs, you'll find little tiny iron lungs for little tiny people, children, and big iron lungs for big people. But it was a horrible thing. And it was a horror show when you saw one of these things. And a lot of families in the 50s, in the, between 30 and 50, were really affected by polio. Our family was. And we had friends who's, who were involved and were affected by polio. It was a virus, and it eventually killed or crippled people. And in 1952, well, let me first of all give you some more statistics. Well, Salk polio vaccine, do you know what it is? Some of you have had the inoculation, and some of you have not. Some of you have had the Sabine Oral vaccination, oral polio vaccination, which is taken by mouth. But between uh, in 1950 and the years of 19 in the 50s, uh, there were between 35 to 58,000 recorded cases of that disease in this country alone every year. No one knows how many diseases there were worldwide, but we just kept track of the diseases in this country. After the salt vac vaccine that was, that was discovered in 1953, the cases dropped to 161 a year. It's now down to 18 a year worldwide. Now, the question is, was that good news? Was, was that a great message? Was that a great message? I'll tell you what, I lived during that time. And when we heard that, that was a fantastic message. Salt polio vaccine works. For my part, I could now go outside barefooted and stomp around in the, in the pools of water. And that's, you know, that's what happened. 
In those days, our mothers would not let us go outside and play in water pools barefooted because of the fear of polio. But now then, the vaccine has come along. Polio virus has been eradicated, basically. We can do what we want to. Great news. And for those who were suffering with it, that was great news. Now, the polio vaccine worked. And when we talk about illness, sin ravages our hearts. And sin damages our hearts. It destroys our best impulses. It blights our lives. It ruins our future. And it shatters our hope. But it is faith in Jesus Christ who inoculates us against sin that gives us the great message. Jesus came to take away our sin. He said, I came to save sinners. He came to eradicate the disease of sin. When we feel weak, and we feel like our immune system is going down, we need another booster shot of Jesus. He will inoculate us against sin. He will help us resist. He'll build up our resistance to sin. 1 Peter 1 at verse 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept, now listen, you are kept by the power of God through faith. You are kept by the power of God through faith. Your disease, the disease of sin, is held in check by one man. He inoculates you. Jesus Christ in your life, you say, well, I'm struggling I'm struggling because I'm, I'm having a hard time with pornography. Get an inoculation. Let Jesus get into your life. He'll help you out of that. I'm, I'm struggling because I, I want to drink. Get with Jesus. Let Him come into your life. Have faith in Him. He'll take care of you. I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time with, with drugs. I'm having a hard time with my language. I'm having a, if you're having a hard time with sin, the answer is Jesus. He's the one who can inoculate you against that disease and keep you free of that. Unless you don't think you're ill. If you're not sick, then, then He can't do anything for you. The great cure. The great cure for polio was salt vaccine. The great cure for sin is Jesus Christ. There's also a great victory. Between the years of 1939 and 1945, six years, this world was engaged in a world war. This country was engaged in it. The whole world was engaged in a world war. Do any of you remember what, what that was like during night, between 39 and 45? I shouldn't be asking that question. <laughs> Maybe you've seen newsreels. Maybe you've seen stories about it. I was there. I remember the rationing books. I still, I used to have one. Still had a little rationing book. The government issued little books. So you could buy gasoline with some rations. You could buy, you could buy sugar with some of the rations. You could buy rubber tires with some of the rations. And so we were rationed. There was food shortage and there was gasoline shortage. We had paper drives. We had rubber drives. We had all sorts of drives to help in the war effort during that period of time. 
During that time in Europe, Hitler and Mussolini had their hands on the throats of most Europeans. Most Europeans. They were, they were involved in an effort to eradicate, eradicate different races. This was ethnic cleansing at its worst. They were cleansing the world of gypsies. They were cleansing the world of Jews. They were cleansing the world of Russians. They were trying to cleanse the world of anyone that did not fit the, the pattern that they wanted to establish. That's what Hitler and Mussolini were doing. In the Pacific area, Hirohito had his sword pressed at the throats of, of uh, Asians and Chinese. So the world was involved in a great struggle. Oh, it was a terrible struggle. And it looked like things were, were going to get just worse and worse. It seemed like the human population of the whole world was under attack by evil men and women. Yes, when the United States got involved in 1941 after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the efforts turned toward the, toward the world powers involving the U.S. and Great Britain and the Allies. Forty, I should say, fifty million people died, soldiers and individual citizens. It was a high price for victory. High price paid, but there was a great victory. I remember when the world war ended. We went out in the streets and hollered. My grandfather and I. Because all the young men were gone. They were in the war effort. But the women were still there and they were working in the factories and so forth. But we went out and rejoiced. And every VE day, which is May the 8th, from 1945. That's the Victory in Europe Day. We celebrate that. Then there was the VJ Day in August the 15th, September the 2nd. Sometimes Harry Truman said it should be September the 2nd instead of August the 15th. That was the victory that we had over the evil powers, over the evil Axis powers. That was a great message. <laughs> I have pictures up here. It was a fantastic message. The war has ended. It's all over. We won. We won. And, and the, and the uh, terror and the danger is past. Now, there has been an attack on humanity by the devil since the days of Noah after the flood. He has been attacking the world and putting his foot on your neck and my neck and the neck of every human being in this world. There has been an attack, an assault on humanity by the enemies of God and the enemies of righteousness. The devil has taken the world into a downward spiral. And that is until Jesus appeared. When Jesus appeared, he began an effort to push back. When he came, he knew the world was in a bad, bad condition. The thoughts of our hearts were evil continually. And the Bible says, would, would even a good man dare to die? But God loved us when we were still in our sin, he dared to die. But Jesus came to take on the enemy of all humanity. He reached age 30 when he started his battle. Age 30. That's from Luke chapter 3, verse 23. 
He entered at that time the war zone. He entered the fight. You say, well, was there really a fight? My friend, there was a horrible fight going on. A horrible battle. And the devil looked like he was winning and going to win. Do you remember when Jesus went up on the mountain in the, in the uh, temptation? And the devil presented some temptation to it. What he was trying to do for Jesus was he, he's trying to get him to sin in some way. If he could get Jesus to sin, he would destroy not only Jesus, he'd destroy you and me and everyone else. He tried to get Jesus to sin. One thing he did, though, that we sometimes miss. He took Jesus and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, if you'll fall down and worship me, you can have these. Do you know what that means? It means that he had them. The devil had control. The devil had full control. Absolute control. He confronted the enemy. Jesus did. For three and a half years. The Bible calls that time, times, and a half a time. 1,290 days, 42 months. He fought the devil to a standstill. And when he went to Calvary, he was fighting for us. He entered the fight, just like the U.S. entered the fight during World War II. Jesus entered the fight. When he was 30 years old, he stood up and said, No further. This is as far as it goes. These are my people. I'm, I'm claiming them. Okay. When Jesus got on the cross of Calvary, I'm sure the devil thought, I've got him. I've got him. He is mine. So late on Friday, Jesus expired. And it looked like we had lost. Early Sunday morning, he arose. Jesus came out of the grave on Sunday morning. Is that good news? That, my friend, is the greatest message you'll ever hear. He arose from the dead. He is the victor from the dead. Now, we may not feel it. We may not know it. We may not acknowledge it. But there's a battle going on. The devil wants you. And it's been going on for a long time. But the good news is, Jesus is not going to let him have you. He's not going to let him have you. He's going to take you and He's going to say, "This, you're mine. You're mine and He can't have you. I don't care if He thinks He's got all the kingdoms of the world. He's got you. He's got you, my friend, and He's going to keep you. That's the good news. The great message of God is that He came to rescue us. He effected the rescue. That He came to cure us. That's a great message. And He came to give us a victory over sin and over death. That's the message, and it's your message today. Let's stand together and sing the song of invitation.